Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What makes strange and mysterious places so irresistible to us? Satellite mapping and ever-present GPS technology have thankfully taken a lot of the guesswork out of navigating the world. But they have not diminished the delight to be found in jumping off the beaten path once in a while just for the sake of discovering something surprising. Alastair Bonnet is professor of social geography at Newcastle University, and he is a collector of stories about unorthodox places, some tucked far away from most human visitors, others hidden from us in plain sight. Bonnet's new book is called Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies. Alastair, welcome to Think. Ah, thank you very much, Chris. What is an unruly place by your definition? An unruly place is somewhere that is very much off the map, uh, somewhere that disorientates our sense of place and makes us think about our relationship to place. And uh, they can be thousands of miles away, but very often they're right around the corner. Hmm. And and we have these microscopically accurate maps these days, or so Hmm. it would seem, and yet to really discover things, we have to go deeper than that. We do, uh, yeah. We are really in an age of microscopic mapping, aren't we? Um, we're all great mappers. Uh, we just assume we know exactly where we are, and a lot of us, myself included, start to panic a little bit if, uh, if, we, if, we, if we're a little bit lost, just a tiny bit lost. Um, but I think that sense of complete mapping also uh, inspires us to think that there is still places out there which are left unexplored. Um, It kind of gives us a real kind of thirst for the new and the fresh, um, which Google Earth or or whatever other satellites there are up there um, hasn't quite yet uh, put their grid references on. We should be clear before we start to tell these stories that not all of the places you write about are like good vacation day trips. Some of them are dangerous. Some of them are, are sad and harsh. Did you feel strongly as you began to compile your list that you needed to represent a full range of the good and bad effects humankind has had on our geography? Yes, yes. I think that's a very important point. Uh, I didn't want to write a book about uh, cute or um, qu- just quirky um, places. Um, some of them are um, desolate. Uh, a lot of them have been destroyed. There's some quite um, tragic stories associated with them, um, with some of them, that is. Uh, but each of them, I think, does have the power to tell us something important about our relationship to place. So they've all got something to say. They've all got a good story, uh, but it's not always a, a happy one. There are some fascinating tales about remote places smack in the middle of these gigantic urban areas. How do these little pockets get forgotten? Yeah, that's right. Well, um, every day, walking to work, um, I pass this uh, benighted traffic island, as as they're called in England. Um, It's just a a lost bit of um, land. It used to be uh, part of a a school playing field, I found out. But now it's got freeways on uh, each side of it, each side of this this triangle. And uh, it was really just sort of glancing back at that, um, realizing that no one else was looking at it, that no one was ever visiting it. Um, It had trees. Then there was was a story there, uh, a story of a a place um, which had been covered over by the modern city, but was still somehow there and still somehow intriguing. 
And uh, it made me realize that we're all passing those strange little pockets all the time, uh, especially those of us uh, who live in the city, and we uh, never give them a thought. But once you start digging into the history of any one of them, they really start to grab your attention. This book made me think a lot about my attention. We live in the part of, uh, part of the country here where there's a lot of construction going on all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's occurred to me sometimes a building will be raised and something else is about to be put up in its place. And I can have driven past it for years and then struggle to remember what was there before. Yeah, 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 that's right. Isn't that such a common feeling that so many of us have? that um, it's like a kind of uh, sense of uh, geographical uh, amnesia. We uh, live in a world that's so um, uh, fast-changing, especially the urban landscape, that it's difficult for our imaginations to quite grasp the world around us uh, before it's suddenly pulled down and a a new landscape is uh, built. Um, And I suppose that um, creates a certain sense of crisis in our relationship to place. A lot of us feel a little bit placeless, it's not just people in the United States, it's people across the world. Uh, a lot of us feel a little placeless. And uh, that is one of the emotions I'm trying to respond to in the book to sh- and make the case very clearly that people do actually need a sense of place. Um, the place is very important to us. I've never been to Mecca, but I will confess that my mental picture of what was there is mm. nothing like what you describe in the book. I know. Well, I've never been... Mecca either, um, but that's not surprising since uh, uh, Muslims aren't allowed to uh, visit uh, Mecca. But the story I have uh, about Mecca isn't so much about the uh, you know, religious exclusion. It's about the fact that 95% of this ancient city has been demolished. And I think that's a shocking story. I didn't really realize that so much of Mecca has now been replaced by retail parks and highways and Starbucks and other uh, chains, chain stores. Um, uh, Before I started researching this book, I found it really shocking. And uh, there's that sense that I wanted to bring out in the story of Mecca um, of how even though people try and constantly um, demolish the past and and push it um, under the earth, the ghosts of it always somehow uh, come to the surface. Because I think uh, even though the Saudi authorities who have demolished so much of Mecca um, have done a very uh, effective job, um, people are still going to be asking today, in 10 years, in 100 years, what, what did it used to be like? What were the old buildings like? What was ancient Mecca like? Um, so I don't think memory can be quite destroyed as effectively as um, sometimes the... Um, the demolishers like to think. Well, some of the changes there obviously are about people chasing money, right? This is an old story and it's repeated all over the world. But um, there's also some some thinking behind why the old has to be destroyed and new things have to be put in its place. Yeah, that's true. It is true that um, within a, a fundamentalist Islam, as represented by the Saudi authorities, there is a kind of form of iconoclasm which m- extends not just to images, but to all old things, including old buildings. So the story runs um, that um, we can't have old buildings in Mecca because people would start to venerate them. And if you start to venerate anything, uh, then that <clears throat> is a form of idolatry. And therefore, it, everything old has to be demolished. That's the way it runs. But I must say, it's rather too um, cute a line. 
um, in a society which uh, is also um, uh, running for the, uh, the, the, the buck of um, the people who are visiting Mecca, or the pilgrims. So it's very convenient um, to have a city that's so um, ripe for destruction so that all the pilgrims can be put up in these new huge hotels and can be um, bussed in along vast new highways. So it's interesting. You've got a nice combination of a kind of neoliberal um, capitalist ideology and fundamentalist Islam, and they seem to be going hand in hand. Borders can be fascinating intersections of people and cultures. Of course, they also represent divisions between people and cultures. Um, can you tell us about how your feelings about borders have evolved over time? They have evolved, yes. I must say I've got a very mixed relationship with borders. I think like a lot of us, uh, I feel very uncomfortable, literally, of borders, uh, being um, prodded and shoved. And uh, every time I... Uh, go to an airport, I'm asked to do something a little bit different. And uh, last time I was asked to take the tissues out of my uh, pocket. Um, I didn't realize that they might be um, a kind of dangerous substance. <laughs> so, yeah, so I had to sort of, <laughs> I mean, it's not the worst thing that can happen at a border, obviously. Uh, you can get taken uh, into some dark room wherever and be prodded and probed. Anyway, the point is, I've had rather a negative feeling about borders for some while. But thinking about um, what we uh, make borders do for us, why we keep drawing them, thinking about it a little bit more deeply has made me realize I have something of a love-hate relationship with borders. Um, I resent them, but also I feel now, where in a world without borders could I possibly ever escape to? Where in a world without borders would it be worth me while um, thinking about and imagining myself... Um, a, this is the kind of thing I thought about in terms of these uh, enclaves in um, uh, the south of the Netherlands, uh, which is the biggest concentration of enclaves in, in Europe, uh, and the second biggest concentration of enclaves in, in the world. They're all concentrated one, around one little village. It's called Baal, and there you've got 22 bits of Belgium inside the Netherlands, and inside those bits of Belgium you've got six bits of the Netherlands. Uh, so it's a bit like a kind of Russian doll or a, a fractal map of borders. Um, and you can walk for, say, 30 seconds and cross five national borders because um, they're nicely um, uh, painted on the sidewalk for you so you can tell exactly uh, which little bit of Belgium or the Netherlands you're in. Anyway, the reason I'm talking about this strange little town, uh, this village inside a village, is that the people love their borders. They really enjoy them. They play with them. They uh, celebrate them. Um, they have a really good time with them. And it made me realize that uh, even though borders can be uh, painful things, um, there, is some, there is a kind of joy, a kind of pleasure that people get from drawing borders about saying, I'm on one side, you're on the other, and wouldn't it be nice if I can go and visit you and you can visit me? Something like that, that sense of the possibility of difference and travel that borders enable. Um, people have figured out ways to pay the, the lowest tax rate based on where they put their front door. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's true. They aren't just fiddling around with borders um, uh, for the sake of it because um, the tax rates uh, are different and uh, in the two different countries and uh, you pay your tax uh, in the country where your front door is. And so the habit used to be that um, as the tax um, rate uh, changed between Belgium and the Netherlands, people would move their front door from one country to another. Um, so there's all sorts of funny dodges that the, um, the local folk um, get up to in their kind of uh, 
cartographic playpen. It does seem in other parts of the world, the more forbidding borders are, the more we long to cross them. I know there is something about um, the border and and the sense that um, there's danger and intrigue and enchantment beyond it. Um, And often in in the book, I'm I'm looking at... um, Places that are, seem to be beyond the border or outside of um, any kind of border. I have one um, story which arose from my search for some place in the world where the two border posts were the furthest apart. Uh, you often know if you, if you travel around that sometimes you'll, you'll leave one country through a border post and then you can travel for, well, you know, is it two feet, three feet? But sometimes it's miles. Sometimes it's miles before you get to the border point of the country that you're visiting. And this is often the case in Africa, sometimes in, in South America as well. So that kind of like, uh, no man's land, um, I think, is also an intriguing um, uh, place that seems to be um, between borders. Uh, and and they're, they're quite common uh, across the earth. We're speaking this hour with Alastair Bonnet. He is professor of social geography at Newcastle University, and he has a new book out called Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can call in to 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Alastair Bonnet. He is professor of social geography at Newcastle University and author of Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies. If you've got a question or you'd like to share a story, call us at 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. I have to tell you, I have long been fascinated by stories of Kijangdong, which is just north, I guess, of the DMZ between the two Koreas. From a distance, this would suggest a thriving metropolis in North Korea. But, of course, the whole thing is a facade. Yeah, it is a facade. Uh, this is a fake city um, or fake town in North Korea uh, where the lights go on and off inside tower blocks that have no glass in the windows. Uh, there's no residents and uh, no visitors uh, are allowed. Uh, and the lights are on timers uh, and the roads are swept clean periodically. So this was built in the 1950s um, by the North Koreans 
uh, to lure potential defectors um, from South Korea. Um, the idea being that people across the border would look at this marvelous, um, thriving display of modernity. After all, there were electric lights, uh, and that was a, a big deal. Uh, and they would uh, rush across the border and uh, join in the communist um, state. Uh, and what's extraordinary is that it is still going. I mean, it was built in the 1950s, and they're still doing it. They're still turning the lights on and off. Um, it's part of the kind of strange uh, mindset uh, that the North Koreans have, um, the kind of ideological rut that they're in. If they just keep pretending this marvelous collective farm of Kim Dong um, and its 200 um, collective families, um, if they, if that, if they can just keep going with it, um, that one day you know, the will of the rest of the world uh, will be broken and we'll all realize that they're on the right path. But the thing is, it's so close to the border that people can see that it's empty um, with the aid of binoculars. Um, people can see it's empty. They can see it's a facade. Um, fascinating uh, story, and not uh, the only one. Um, fake places, uh, towns, villages have been built uh, uh, throughout history for all sorts of different reasons, uh, and they're one of the kind of uh, untold byways in the, in the history of the, of, the, of the city. And, of course, the irony is that now that the secret is out, I mean, it's far worse PR for North Korea than it, yeah. had it never existed at all. It looks pathetic. Yes, I, I know. I know it looks pathetic. Um, and, of course, it is. Um, at the same time, there's something uh, of a kind of like bullheaded stubborn resilience uh, to common sense, which um, isn't, it isn't admirable, but it's uh, jaw-dropping. It's remarkable. Mm. And, you know, strange, remarkable places are kind of, are kind of what I deal with in, in this book. Um, so uh, for me, it was uh, manna from heaven. So what does it take to declare your own country? Yes, that's a very good question. And um, a lot of people are asking this. What does it take to declare your own country? I mean, living in the UK at the moment, it's very much a question at the moment with the people of Scotland going to the polls um, in a few weeks' time to decide whether they're going to have an independent Scotland or not. Um, and Scotland was it's pretty big, I suppose, five or five and a half million people. Um, but you don't need uh, five and a half million people. Um, you could just do it on your own. Um, there's some stories in, in the book. Um, the one I highlight is... Uh, uh, Sealand, and that was an uh, old Second World War um, sea fort um, built off the Essex coast. I was always interested in that because I come from this county in the south of England, uh, Essex, and so I knew about Sealand, and I kind of um, uh, knew that it was um, an independent country, but couldn't quite believe that such a thing could be possible. Uh, but the story is really fascinating. It was occupied by this old... Um, uh, army uh, uh, retired military gent called Roy Paddy Bates in 1967, and he just sort of climbed aboard um, the sea fort um, in, uh, with his family and uh, declared himself the prince and declared his wife the princess of Sealand and began to issue postage stamps and coins. And this is what people in microstates usually do. The first thing they do is they, they give themselves royal titles, and the second thing they do is they start issuing postage stamps <laughs> and uh, coins, and then often passports. And it makes you think, what is it, what is it to be a state? Hmm. Well, everyone's got to have a title. People who are running it have, have to have some sort of title, and they need to start creating a bureaucracy with bits of paper um, floating around. 
These seem to be the first things people do uh, when they try and set up a state. And Sealand actually was quite successful. It's still there. It's still declaring itself as independent. I mean, what they had, a lot of other micro-nations don't have, um, what they had was the fact that they were in, in international waters. This uh, sea fort was in international waters, so it wasn't within the UK's waters or France's. Um, and so it was able to keep going um, and be kind of recognized because the UK didn't tax it, the UK didn't try and take it over with its gunboats. Um, it, was, uh, it was kind of recognized as an independent country, even though how many people were there? One little family. <laughs> um, they, they lost, just to continue the story of Sealand, they lost their independence a little bit in 1987 because the UK extended its territorial waters. They used to be three miles, and now they're 12, and so that includes Sealand. But, of course, Sealand, what would it do? It did the only sensible thing. It extended its own territorial waters <laughs> and, and tried to annex um, Harwich and Felixstowe and a lot of the um, southeast ports of um, England. And so there was this sort of David and Goliath war, which technically is still going on, with each country trying to annex the other. Anyway, it's great. It's fun. One of the big things about Sealand that really gets me going is just how much fun people have um, creating their own nation. Let's go back to Scotland for just a minute. A lot of the news accounts that we've heard in this country have come from Scotland and people there who are really interested in full yeah. independence. How, how, what's the sentiment around the rest of the UK right now? I think there's a real sense of concern. I, I think within England, um, there's a real sense that people have taken... Uh, Scotland for granted for a very long time indeed and not really paid attention um, to the wishes and needs of the Scottish people. Britain has been very centred on London for years and uh, it's as if people have forgotten that there are other parts um, of this United Kingdom and they're not getting much of a look-in. And to be honest, I think it will be a huge crisis for the English if um, the Scots go independent because the English don't really have a national identity as English. Um, people here tend to call themselves British. Um, and if Scotland goes, what happens to that identity of Britishness? Um, it kind of uh, disappears. And so Englishness just doesn't, um, hasn't got enough going for it, isn't clear enough as an identity to yet fill that void. So I think this has been talked about as a big story for Scotland, but I think it's all an even bigger story uh, for the people of England. I did not realize until reading your book that walled cities were still a thing. But not only are they surviving and thriving in certain parts of the world, but it's often by the choice of the people who reside there. Ah, uh, yeah. I know you're referring to a Kalut city um, in, uh, in Russia. Um, this was something I didn't know about. Like a lot of the stories in the book, um, I approached them um, and started to write about them because I hadn't heard of them, didn't know much about them before uh, I'd started the book. And they just amazed me. And I thought, well, if this is new to me, hopefully it'll be new to some other people as well. So uh, Russia has these closed cities, and they are inherited from the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had a whole bunch of reasons why it would close off a city, often because they were making uh, military material, nuclear bombs and um, satellites and so on. What's extraordinary is that these cities have now been given the choice whether to open up or to remain closed, 
and most of them have chosen to remain closed by democratic vote. Um, the one I concentrate on is called Grasnoyarsk 26. Uh, they were given these postcodes of the nearest big city. Uh, even their real name was hidden. And in 1996, the people of this um, substantial town um, were asked where they wanted um, to remain closed, which is incredibly inconvenient. It means you've got to have a little permit to get in or a permit to get out. Um, it's uh, a, a completely kind of walled um, environment. And they said, no, we want to stay closed. And the reason they want to stay closed is fascinating. They want to stay closed because they regard the rest of Russia as a kind of chaotic environment. What they are, in fact, choosing is to become a gated community. So the old Soviet closed cities are now the very 21st century gated communities where you don't want um, anybody uh, to just wander in. You don't want to be open to criminals and, and chaos. You want to make sure that you're being very select about who gets in to your, your, um, your nice and pristine um, little town. Some places are intriguing simply because people use them in interesting ways. But if we can sort of push past um, our cultural expectations, for example, it's not altogether illogical to make one's home in a burial chamber. No, I suppose not. Um, yeah, that was an interesting story. Uh, this relationship we have to the dead is, is a very deep one and a very complicated one. Um, we tend to build our homes uh, as far away from the graveyard as we can in, in, in most societies. Um, and the sense of um, unease uh, that communities have had uh, throughout the ages about living near the dead, it's certainly not universal, but it's, it's very common. Um, so I was intrigued to find out about um, communities that have set up home um, in graveyards, uh, in living amongst the tombs or inside the tombs um, of the dead. Um, I guess the most well-known of these places is in uh, Cairo, where the, where the city of the dead um, uh, has about half a million residents, uh, people who live in and amongst the tombs. And uh, what is great about these tombs in, uh, in, in Cairo is that they're substantial affairs. They've got rooms. Uh, because the uh, habit used to be that people would go and um, spend time uh, mourning for the dead and they needed a kind of accommodation there. So they're quite substantial. And why do people live there? And they live there uh, not just with houses, but they've got shops, there's a, there's a, there's a hospital. People are born in this, in this uh, huge cemetery mm. uh, and other facilities. They choose to live there because the graveyard is the cheapest place um, in the city. Um, if, you, if you want low rents, um, look in the cemetery. Um, and the place in Cairo, turns out, isn't the only um, city of the dead. Uh, the example I pick out is from the Philippines, uh, from Manila, where there's another um, smaller uh, city of the dead where people live amongst uh, the tombs, and they have a kind of um, uh, relationship with the dead, the idea being that they will look after the tombs and care for them, and in return, uh, the expectation of the residents is, or the hope is, that they won't be um, plagued by bad dreams. They won't be haunted, essentially. Um, so the dead will uh, let them live there as long as they look, up, look after the tombs. So I thought that was fascinating, a new kind of relationship um, with the dead, which isn't about being scared of them, 
but about having a kind of ongoing um, curatorial relationship with them. And and interestingly, these places tend to be lower. The crime rates are lower in the cemeteries than in other parts of the city. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, it turns out the criminals are quite frightened of the dead. Um, and these are quite close communities. Um, people look out for each other. Uh, and the uh, people in the cemetery in, in Manila are, are at the moment uh, trying to fight off the um, incursion of um, um, uh, criminal elements um, because um, I guess it takes a certain type of um, community to, as it were, come to terms um, with the dead. And they don't want, uh, this is true of the City of the Dead in Cairo, as it is in Manila, they, they don't want um, incomers who are going to upset the apple card and, more importantly, who don't treat the dead with respect. What makes abandoned places so fascinating to so many people? They are, aren't they? They are. They are. They, they draw us in. Um, I think partly we are getting used to abandoned places. Um, this is. This seems to be the age of abandoned places. Uh, partly because there's been such rapid development, uh, we get all sorts of parts of town suddenly springing up. And with the nature of the economy, it's going to boom and bust cycle. Often these places suddenly become. Um, empty, or they never get filled um, to, to start with. So it isn't as if abandoned places are necessarily remote or exotic. We probably all know of abandoned places um, uh, near where we live where the property market just hasn't worked for them. And they are fascinating because um, we, there's a strange sense of them being um, haunted or uh, the lack of um, occupation by uh, people means that they can be occupied by other species. It doesn't take long before abandoned places get um, uh, flora and fauna creeping in, and you can just watch that over weeks or months or days, and very soon they get you know, absorbed back into nature. Um, so I think, I think they're fascinating because of that sense of um, absence, the kind of haunted city idea, but also because if we're not living there, for damn sure some other species is going <laughs> to move in pretty soon. I think many of us also have this idea that we leave a part of ourselves, of our essence, not just physical possessions, but we leave something behind when we have lived in a place and go somewhere else. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. We do have our identities very much um, wrapped around place. Um, it's one of the themes I try and wrestle with uh, in the book, because um, we often think about people's identities in terms of their individual psychology and about their relationships and about how you get on with your mother and father and your children and people. However, um, place and our relationship to place, um, I think is a rather untold story in the, um, in, when, we, when we think about human identity. Um, the places of our childhood um, in particular are, are often very formative and they come back to us and as you say, um, we do leave a little bit of ourselves there. Um, and that might be something we want to escape from. It might be something that doesn't give us happy memories. Hmm. Uh, although for many of us, um, it does give us a, a certain sense of nostalgia and uh, uh, well-being. Um, but, in, but either way, um, our identity as we move through our lives isn't just about people. It's also about the places that we've lived in and known. 
Alastair Bonnet is my guest. He's professor of social geography at Newcastle University and author of Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies. Join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372. Email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu CAPE. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Alastair Bonnet, who is professor of social geography at Newcastle University. His new book is called Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies. You can be part of the conversation or ask a question at 1-800-933-5372, or you can send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. One of my favorite stories in the book, Alastair, is at the very beginning about a place called Sandy Island. How did it find its way onto so many maps over the centuries? Yes, this is a fascinating story. Um, Sandy Island was 15 miles long, um, and it's west of New Caledonia in the Pacific, that is, in the Pacific Ocean. Um, It's been on the map since the late 19th century. Uh, It was discovered by a ship... um, the Velocity, in 1876, and it was on the Times Atlas of the World, um, lots of other atlases, it was on Google Earth. Uh, But in 2012, some Australian scientists decided to visit Sandy Island, and they found out that it didn't exist. Um, It just wasn't there. So uh, they were very bemused, because they were using Google Earth. (laughs) And um, they were scratching their heads. It turns out that um, uh, Google Earth and other um, uh, atlases tend to take information from the past. They're not just uh, objective, a snapshot. And in the remotest parts of the world, they will reach for um, uh, data, old sources um, that um, are not always 100% reliable. Um, So the fact that this Sandy Island had been on the map since 1876 um, was on various admiralty, admiralty charts, um, the British Admiralty and the uh, American Navy as well, uh, gave it an authority, you see. Uh, so it just continued there, and um, it, it doesn't make you wonder. Uh, but uh, now that spot um, on Google Earth is covered in all sorts of photographs. The um, uh, people who use Google Earth uh, are kind of... Uh, uh, a subversive lot, and they've, they've covered Sandy Island with photographs of the back streets of Detroit and um, <laughs> huge temples and clashing dinosaurs, and uh, it's become a bit of a kind of uh, a redoubt for the human imagination. A kind of people are, people are enjoying the fact that the atlases have got it wrong. The idea that the world is 100% surveilled, that everything we do is under the microscope. People love the idea that that isn't quite true, uh, that these um, 
uh, incredibly powerful uh, institutions and satellites out there don't always get it right. And I think people will take some sort of pleasure from that. Are we still making maps the old-fashioned way, or is it all done now with satellites, that sort of thing? Well, the satellite is now the key source of mapping, so we don't need to make maps um, in the in the old-fashioned way, and certainly not at this uh, planetary or, or, or national scale, at a much small small scale. Um, you, know, you can you can still see people, you know, surveying um, city blocks, but um, uh, the bigger scale, the bigger the scale, the more likely it is that it's going to be uh, satellites that are uh, being being put to use. But as, as this story of Sandy Island implies, they're not always um, 100%, and they do miss things. Um, there are certain parts of the world where the resolution isn't that great, um, the oceans, uh, the poles, but also parts of um, uh, Africa. I was fascinated by a story that didn't make it into my book, actually. It came out too late. Um, there's this uh, peat bog uh, the size of England that's being discovered in the Congo Republic. Wow. Yeah, huge, about 50,000 square miles. Uh, this area that um, the uh, satellites had, had picked out, but you couldn't quite tell what it was because the resolution was so poor. So it took these scientists who went from the University of uh, Leeds in uh, England, it took them to get into that area, go through the jungle, um, and arrive there. And they did this in April this year, only in April 2014, has this area of peat bog the size of England been um, identified. So that makes me think that there are still places left uh, waiting to be um, identified um, and discovered in, in the world today. Maybe we don't think about it too much, but we've accepted for half a century that there are satellites up in space sort of uh, photographing from a distance. But drone technology now makes it possible for humans to see places we can't physically access from a much closer perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of new questions we should be asking about privacy and about exploration and, and, and what we can expect? Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, this is a very fast-changing um, area. Um, I believe that the law uh, in the U.S. has changed recently. Um, the U.S. government uh, used to restrict um, uh, the resolution of um, satellite images, um, so you couldn't um, uh, get resolution of anything smaller than 50 centimeters. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that um, restriction um, is going to be lifted, and so you will be able to see objects smaller than 50 centimeters, which is pretty small, um, with your um, uh, Google Earth and other types of um, uh, satellite um, uh, technology. Uh, and that means you can see, if you think about what 50 centimeters is, it's tiny. Yeah. I mean, you can see, you know, you can almost read people's books over their shoulders <laughs> um, with that kind of um, resolution. As that example from uh, Africa just implied, this, is a, this isn't going to happen everywhere. Um, there are only certain spots um, that get that kind of um, access to high resolution. And I suppose the question is, do you want to live in a place where satellites can uh, see your number plate, they can see what you're doing, can recognize your facial, facial features from 
open space, um, or do you live in a spot where you have a uh, lower uh, resolution? And I, I suppose there might be a kind of movement of, of uh, a kind of sifting of the population into areas with high and low resolution according to uh, people's um, appetite for privacy or their uh, pleasure in living a public life. We have an email here from Logan in Dallas who says, I'm sure that mapping companies include fake places in their maps to catch and prevent any plagiarism by other companies. Do you know of any famous ones or have any of these um, false references caused any real confusion or damage, similar to Sandy Island? Yeah, that's, I have um, come across this idea, although I don't have uh, examples of uh, um, these uh, false reference points. Um, yeah, the idea being that people would put um, misleading kind of red herrings on their map, and then they'd know if that uh, map was being copied because that uh, uh, red herring would be um, uh, repeated. Um, I don't think it's particularly common practice, to, to be honest, because particularly in the areas where, uh, which are so highly mapped into such a high degree of resolution, which is actually true of quite a lot of the United States and true of a lot of Europe as as well, um, people are so hot to identify mistakes, and as soon as they find a mistake, people jump up and down and um, you know cover the map um, uh, with, with commentary, um, deriding the map makers. So they have to be <laughs> they'd have to be very careful about putting in uh, false leads. It certainly sounds as if the Sandy Island story is um, a story about a mistake rather than a deliberate error. We had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago who's a photographer, and he went down to document these underground cities that were used during World War I um, beneath the battlefields in France. Oh, yeah. And, um, of course, they want to keep these things hidden and preserved because they really haven't been touched since the First World War. And I've been thinking a lot about the conflict that we feel when we discover a hidden place between wanting to tell everybody about this amazing thing we found and wanting to keep them relatively private. Yes, well, that is the um, dilemma of all explorers. Um, should I rush around telling everybody about my marvellous uh, discovery um, and thereby ena- enabling the world to come in and uh, for it to cease to become special? Or should I keep it to myself like some locked-away secret? Um, and, there, and by so doing, it become a huge burden um, to, to myself um, and also to be very selfish about it. It is what a lot of explorers find. And it's true that modern urban explorers, uh, the kind of um, men and women who explore the nighttime city and the underground city of uh, uh, a lot of places in the States and uh, in Europe and across the world, um, have the same uh, dilemma. Uh, In the book, I talk about um, uh, some people who discovered what they call the labyrinth underneath St. Paul and uh, Minneapolis, um, the Twin Cities. These interconnecting tunnel systems, uh, myriad man-made caves that exist uh, underneath, the, underneath the Twin Cities. And um, there's, a, there's a big split in that community of people who are interested in exploring the so-called labyrinth. Should you uh, publish information about it, put it on the Internet, enable people to go down and visit, or should you lock it up after you've visited? Um, should you make sure that no one else um, has access and therefore keep it pristine and protected. So this dilemma, which is as old as exploration, is being played out in all sorts of new ways. Hmm. 
And I suppose we all trust ourselves not to ruin things, but we assume the next person to come along is going to destroy it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, the next person along uh, is definitely not to be trusted. They're going to you know, leave their rubbish. They're going to um, uh, they're going to you know, turn it into something which lacks any kind of um, special qualities. They're going to start charging admission and you know selling guidebooks and commercialize it or whatever. People do tend to feel that um, their own personal discoveries um, should be kept uh, kept private, and uh, maybe that does go back to our sense of place um, as children. Um, I often think that the, the first places in our lives are the, are the kind of secret places that uh, we make as children, the dens, the little kind of places in the bushes, or wherever people would make their uh, special places. And uh, I think we can all remember if we cast our minds back, just how special that place was and how we didn't want other kids, and especially not adults, hmm. coming in and uh, destroying that special private place. Did this project make you think a lot about the relationship between place and time? Because sometimes, you know, the buildings are the same, um, but, but a moment in time almost transforms a physical location into another place if you go back far enough. Yeah, that's right. There is a, a strange relationship between place and time, and especially, you know, casting a mind back to what uh, we were talking about earlier, which is abandoned places. That really throws um, a spanner in the works in terms of this relationship between time and place, because as soon as people have left a place, somehow uh, it can be ti- it becomes timeless. Um, it, 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 it feels like um, ancient ruins. Um, there's a place in the book, um, uh, Giare, in, in, in Sicily, which I talk about, which is full of um, abandoned but very modern um, ruins, uh, great big sports stadia and uh, other mega projects which have just been started but then they've been stopped before the building's been complete. Anyway, they look like ancient ruins. And, of course, Sicily's covered in Greek and Roman ruins. And these places even though they might be only 20 years old, 30 years old, they fit right in um, because they have that same abandoned quality and the cactuses and the, you know, the dust of the volcano is lying uh, thick across them. So within a matter of um, uh, decades, even less, they've become, in some curious way, ancient. Of all the places you wrote about for this book but have not yet been to, um, is there one that really stands out that you would like to see? Well, yes, it really do, it is a book that whets my appetite. I mean, I went to a bunch of them. Some of them you couldn't get to. And then there's this other category of places I could get to, um, but I haven't done. Um, and there's definitely a few on my list. Um, one of the uh, places that is is... Um, Kangbashi, which is this newly built dead city in China. Um, it's in uh, the inner Mongolia, and what we have there is huge apartment blocks, grand plazas, stuffed with huge sculptures and shiny, iconic architecture, but there isn't a soul in sight. Uh, it's one of these new built um, cities um, put up for a hoped-for new residential population, but also put up um, to celebrate the local uh, provincial government. Um, And uh, no one's ever moved in. Hmm. Uh, It's that sense of 
visiting a place which is new and purpose-built and all ready to go, but completely empty. There's, there's something um, of the um, something eerie, uncanny, uh, which is just uh, fascinating about that. Alastair Bonnet is professor of social geography at Newcastle University and author of Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies. Alastair, it's been a really interesting hour. Thank you so much for making this time for us. Okay, it's been great. Thanks very much. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered today by Alan Roberts. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer with help on the phones from Gus Contreras. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.